Welcome to the 2019 F1 Strategy Report, powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. My name's Michael Amanato, and this is Round 8, the French Grand Prix. Well, what can we say? Lewis Hamilton dominated at Circuit Paul Ricard like a man on a mission to win his sixth title as fast as possible. But the hot track and sticky tyres meant strategy was kept to a minimum in the interest of making it all the way to the end of the race with just one stop. To analyse what was, in the words of every F1 broadcaster, not a classic French Grand Prix, I'm joined by freelance motorsport journalist and old mate of the show, Matt Clayton. Matt, how you doing? Michael, I love it how you always bring me on for the absolute uh, <laughs> outstanding race of the season. I think we did last year's French Grand Prix on this show from memory, mm. and I think that was marginally better than this one. So uh, the bar was reasonably low last year. I think it's been lowered limbo style for 2019. But uh, as always, good to join you. Yeah, it's pretty close to the ground at this point. But uh, all, the, all the shininess and newness of the first French Grand Prix in however many years is fully worn off, and people are now calling for it to be dropped. So it only lasts two years that... The novelty factor of a Grand Prix, but hey, it's part of the calendar, it's part of the championship, which means we have to talk about it. Uh, let's start, well, pretty much from the beginning and the overriding theme of this Grand Prix. And look, we talk about them a lot on this show. I don't want to give too much emphasis to them, but it really was the tyres, or let's say, let's be a little bit kind and say the weather. Who'd have thought that this time of year in the south of France would be particularly summery as it was? It was warm. Uh, not only in terms of weather, but the track temperatures were really quite hot, almost Malaysia-esque, reaching 60 degrees, and that really limited the amount of strategic variation this race, made one tyre pretty much completely unusable, and dictated a, a, pl- a pretty slow Grand Prix overall. Yeah, it's bizarre, isn't it? You think of Paul Ricardo being as somewhere it could be as hot as Sepang, yeah. but uh, certainly not something we would have thought. Always warm there at this time of year, but uh, even more extreme, mid-50s track temperatures. That's just not something we see in the European summer. So as you said, it's a, it's a difficult track anyway, and I think the extreme temperatures and the fact that one of the three compounds, as we will see when we discuss who started on that soft tyre later on in the race was basically unusable. I think the other factor as well was that the surface was a bit of a patchwork this year. Mm. And uh, Mario Vasola said early in the weekend, there's almost three distinct surfaces on that track now. There's been a bit of patching up done after some GT racing there. It was obviously a completely new surface last year. And I think the the surface changes did cause a lot of graining, particularly on that softer tyre. So that made that reasonably unusable and I think the other limiting factor at this circuit and thank goodness they fixed up the pit lane entry Mm. and exit compared to last year because I spent most of last year's pit stops watching it with my hands over my eyes (laughs) waiting for the impact but it was slightly safer but it's such a narrow slow pit lane that doing a two-stopper realistically for reasons other than trying to set a faster slap which we'll discuss later but uh, doing a two-stopper was completely off the table so Lewis Hamilton flagged it on Friday he said there's going to be a lot of lift and coast in this race which is a not something exactly sets the pulse racing but um, the combination of you know perhaps a changing track surface the extreme heat and that really narrow pit lane where there's a heavy time loss for making more than one stop uh, all pointed us in the direction of the race we eventually got exactly right and considering that given the temperatures even the hard and the medium tires was experiencing a great deal of wear meant that one stop was requiring a great deal of management. It wasn't simply a use the hardest tyres and have a go. Uh, interesting as well with this circuit, it's almost the second test venue, essentially, we're racing on. We complain a lot when we get to the Spanish Grand Prix, not only that the teams know everything about that track, but because it's such a 
a trying track for the cars, we tend not to get particularly action-packed races. A similar effect here, because Paul Ricard pretty much is a glorified test venue. There are about a hundred different configurations, and hey, maybe they should consider using a different one in the future. But it meant that the, the, the technicality of the circuit didn't really lend itself to good racing in the first place. No, that's right. I think the Barcelona comparison is very valid. I think we're probably a little more cynical and more used to Barcelona because we see it year on year. Mm. It's a great circuit to test the capabilities of a car. I don't think there's any doubt about that in terms of the degree of the types of corners and uh, you know straights versus you know the last section is a terrific section with those couple of great corners at turns 10, 11 and 12. But does it produce great racing? Barcelona always strikes me, and if you speak to a lot of the drivers, it's a great track to drive, which mm. is fine for the 20 guys that are driving it. But in terms of a, a spectacle and in terms of strategic variance, there's not a lot that Barcelona throws up. And uh, Paul Ricard is the uh, is the new Barcelona, or perhaps the old Barcelona. I'm not sure which one came <laughs> first, but uh, both both of them end up in the same uh, in the same vein of races. And uh, well, two of the eight Grand Prix this year have had a very very similar feel to them at these two tracks. Mm. And just when you think you're going to get rid of Barcelona in 2020, hey, the French Grand Prix I think got a long term contract, so we'll never be without one test-esque venue so i'm sure we'll be looking forward to the race again next year uh we say uh race this has been a a really devolving season in terms of how high expectations have been for competitiveness uh in the championship uh and actually talking of spain a good thread here that the spanish grand prix was a test for the health of the championship in terms of expectations set during pre-season testing this in some senses was another one not only because it is a good test of the car but ferrari pegged this race to bring some upgrades in an attempt to revive uh its championship hopes if in fact they're still at the point of revival this was the most emphatic slapdown of any hope you might have had left in the championship anyone could imagine. There was not a moment Mercedes didn't look like it had this one in hand. How much does this just really speak to how high-functioning this Mercedes team is? Because, I mean, it's even it's even worse than it was in Spain, really, the, the level of domination of this Grand Prix. Well, and you mentioned Spain. When we go back to pre-season testing, which I was at the first of the Barcelona tests, and the ease at which Ferrari seemed to be able to get a lap time out of that car made us all genuinely think, hang on a minute, we might actually have a season Mm -hmm. here. And we know that Mercedes went down a bit of a blind alley with the the first iteration of their car and made some changes for that second test. But it was quite jarring when we got to Barcelona in May to see how much Mercedes had improved or how far Ferrari had fallen or a combination of both. But as you mentioned, Ferrari came to Paul Ricard, new front and rear wing on the car, new brake ducts, a lot of changes up and down the grid. Red Bull also, Renault obviously with their big upgrades. Mercedes bought a car that has obviously been refined through the year. But as you were saying, I don't think there was any point from the moment that free practice started on Friday that we didn't expect Mercedes to be one and two on the timesheets. The only intrigue was going to be which of the... uh, Two drivers was going to be one and two, and it was still intriguing as we moved through Saturday, through mm-hmm. FP3 and, and through qualifying. But uh, once we got to Q3 and uh, once Lewis Hamilton decided to do what he often does in <laughs> Q3, I think uh, it would have been an absolute shock had he not won the race, uh, given the form that he showed against his teammate and also against every other car in the field. But as you said before, I think the the margin with which Mercedes are playing with at the moment, they're not exactly having smooth weekends either. There was mm. a 
a bit of fraud action on the Sunday again, as there was in Montreal with Lewis Hamilton's car, and he was complaining at various points through the race. It sounded like one of the seat mountings broke at one point, so it wasn't completely smooth sailing for him. And uh, yeah, an 18-second win, if you just looked at the timesheets, would uh, indicate that it was very smooth. Yeah, almost uh, shades of the start of this turbo hybrid era, 2014. I think Valtteri Bottas completed this race with a misfiring engine and still finished second. So there's uh, certainly a little bit of margin in that car. Before we get to some of the the few strategic points of intrigue in this race. Just a word on Hamilton versus Bottas, because if there's no championship fight between Mercedes and Ferrari, it's really falling down to Valtteri Bottas to keep uh, some interest in this season. He was praised for being Bottas 2.0 at the start of the year, a name I wasn't particularly fond of, but I guess it described (laughs) something. Uh, That certainly doesn't seem to be the case so much anymore. The slow starts we sort of got used to Hamilton having over the last couple of years, he certainly shortened them down and seems to be in a pretty strong purple patch at the moment. Is there any hope, in your opinion, that Valtteri Bottas can salvage something here, 36 points down already as he is in the championship? Look, I'm not sure that Bottas's level has necessarily dropped that much. I mean, I think he was terrific in Australia. We saw that and uh, got the win in Baku a year after he should have won mm-hmm. that race, of course. I don't necessarily know if his level has dropped that much. We see the odd little wobble in Q3 or the, the occasional slow start like he made in Spain. I think more frighteningly for everybody else, Lewis Hamilton is operating at a level of efficiency and form at the moment at a point of the calendar that's not usually his strongest point. He normally lays the smack down from about Hungary onwards. He always seems to go to Hungary, win, go into the break, and then just decimate the field after the mid-season break. The fact that he's peaking at this point, it's his fourth straight race win, he's won six of the first eight. So I think he is at a very high level earlier in the season than we're used to. We've seen what Bottas can do, beat Hamilton in a straight fight in Australia. We know that he, on his day, can be just as quick, but those days are becoming fewer and further between. So I don't know whether there's a Bottas 2.0.1 or something <laughs> else in the uh, in the Mercedes manual that they can dial up, but uh, the Drivers' Championship 100% now depends on how strong a fight he can mount against his teammate because I think Ferrari and Red Bull and everybody else are uh, bit part players at this point. Absolutely no pressure then on Valtteri Bottas. Not at all. <laughs> if we look at the... Uh... Layout of this field overall. Uh, a lot of the finishing positions, the ones that did happen to change between or well, over the course of the race, from the grid to the end uh, to the checkered flag, did sort of depend on the starting compound of tyre. Only two drivers started on the soft: Pierre Gasly and Antonio Giovinazzi. And we'll get to Gasly in particular uh, a little a little later on as we dissect how the midfield unfolded. But there was a difference between those who started on the medium tyre and those who started on the hard. It was interesting to see actually that all but two drivers managed to use the medium in Q2. Such was the understanding that the soft tyre was going to be pretty average for that opening stint of the race. But let's compare Kimi Räikkönen and Nico Hülkenberg to uh, Daniel Ricciardo. And let's assume for a moment that Daniel Ricciardo hasn't gotten that post-race time penalty just for the sake of dissecting this strategy. Uh, it showed that I, I guess the, the difficulty of the tyres, the heat as we talked about and the wear did hold a pretty substantial advantage for those who start on the hard simply because uh, the car was so much heavier at that point in time. They were able to gain some ground by the time they made that stop later in the race and jump even a couple of positions. Yeah, absolutely. You could see towards the end of the race the the way in which uh, Hülkenberg and Raikkonen were hunting down Ricardo, who had started on obviously the quicker tyre, and uh, that, that tyre proved to be probably the the best strategy i mean we mentioned you mentioned before about the penalties dictating the order of the, the back end of the top 10 but uh in hindsight perhaps that hard tire uh was the one to be on i was a little bit surprised that 
I think Lance Stroll was the one that surprised me. He said after the race that he felt he probably should have pitted and discarded his hard tyres earlier than he did. He went all the way to lap 39 and was uh, pleasantly surprised, but probably a little bit annoyed that his mediums still had some life in them in, in the end and didn't get a spot in the top 10. But uh, you mentioned Raikkonen and Hulkenberg. They were the two biggest gainers, I suppose, of the, the drivers that had the free tyre choice and started on the hards. And uh, as for the softs, uh, other than people trying to set fastest laps on them at the end of the race, they uh, mostly stayed in the garage, didn't they? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, the fact that there were still some new sets at the end, very unusual at a Formula 1 Grand Prix for soft tyres. Absolutely. Uh, that pursuit of Raikkonen and Hulkenberg towards the end of the race of Ricardo, who was chasing Lando Norris. And, I mean, we talk often about the battle for the best of the rest in Formula 1. This was a battle for the best of the rest's best of the rest because <laughs> McLaren was sort of a bit of a cut ahead of the midfield. It, it's slowly starting to come good, I guess, touch wood if you're a McLaren fan uh, this season, really rising to the top of that midfield. Renault was sort of, sort of thereabouts, I suppose, but Carlos Sainz certainly seemed a little bit untouchable. Lando Norris, only because of that hydraulics problem at the end, came under fire from... Daniel Ricciardo but I think more importantly here the fact that Ricciardo was fighting with Norris and then eventually defending against Raikkonen and passing him off the track was that Pierre Gasly was not involved because his car was faster than all of them theoretically even despite starting on the soft tyre strategy should have been enough to get him up there but Ricardo made very easy work of him after that first pit stop, despite the difference in car pace. He did, very easy. And uh, I think that probably speaks to a few things. I think Daniel's starting to get into a nice sweet spot with that Renault. We saw that he was, uh, particularly Australia, was a bit of a a fraught debut for the new team. But uh, he certainly seems to be on top of that now. He obviously had the new engine for the weekend, which Nico Hulkenberg didn't in the sister car. But uh, Pierre Gasly at the moment, he is... uh, He's kind of in a category of his own. He's, uh, you know, he's driving for one of the three best teams, but he's always the slowest of the three best teams, yet still should be comfortably ahead of the rest of the midfield. To think that he only scored one point in his home Grand Prix and that only came after Ricardo took two post-race penalties. Yes, we know that the soft tyre was not the tyre to be on at the start of the race, and I think Antonio Giovinazzi would concur mm-hmm. with that. But... Uh, the season has been pretty underwhelming so far for Pierre Gasly. And to think that he's only just ahead of Carlos Sainz in the Drivers' Championship after eight races, it's a big enough sample size now to think that there must be some concerns there as to has he gone through too soon to the main team? Did they have another choice? But it's certainly not working out for him at the moment. And going back to that Barcelona first test, he had two massive shunts mm-hmm. up there and uh, has never really looked like he's on top of things since. And he's uh, yeah, been in his uh, own little class for the first eight races of the year. Just to detour briefly on the topic of Pierre Gasly, Red Bull Racing uh, is known for its ruthlessness, ruthlessness, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but yet I suppose they find themselves in a situation where it's not as if there's an obvious choice to replace him. What does the future hold for Pierre Gasly in this situation? I mean, he's being compared to Max Verstappen, which is, well, it's a pretty difficult position to be in given the level Verstappen's been performing at this season. But considering that Red Bull Racing should be eyeing off Ferrari for second in the championship, but are not because of Gasly's points haul. I mean, it, it can't end well for him, surely. But this goes back 12 months. I mean, you look at last year's driver lineup, who would have ever thought that Brendan Hartley would get another shot in Formula One you know, so late into his career and the fact that I've actually lost count of whether Danny Kvyat's been <laughs> let go and brought back. I, I, I think I've run out of fingers. I might have to take my socks off or something. But uh, it's getting to the point where if it's not Gasly, then who is it? Uh, I mean, Alex Albon is in Formula One this year. I don't think too many people would have predicted mm-hmm. that this time last year. So the uh, you know the much vaunted Red Bull driver pathway seems to be a bit bare at the moment. And obviously, losing Daniel Ricciardo from that had a knock-on effect. There's a ripple effect when someone of his calibre leaves. But uh, I think Gasly 
will get a stay of execution. One, because I think he will get better. He's a quick racing driver. I think we saw enough of that last year with Toro Rosso to indicate he's a quick racing driver, perhaps in a team with less expectation. Is he in a top-line team maybe a year too soon? Look, possibly. But at the moment, given lack of other options, and I think they kind of have to stick with him and build with him because we've seen what happens in the past when they cut guys loose. You're bringing in someone else who equally isn't as ready. So I think... I'd be very surprised if he didn't have a stay of execution at the team. But as you said before, Max Verstappen's doing a terrific job with what he has at the moment, and it should be a much closer fight between Ferrari and Red Bull. But the difference is one team has two drivers scoring points and one team has one. Just to emphasise as well that given there were so few opportunities in this race for much to pan out strategically, a lot of this came down, given we only had one pit stop per car for the most part. Uh, the pit stops themselves did play a role. We talk about the battle between Gasly and Ricardo towards the start of the race. Despite Gasly starting on the soft tie, was very much... Uh, in the competition for that position. Ricardo uh, attempted the undercut on him, having followed him for a while. It wasn't successful, at least at first. He did manage to pass him on the track uh, one lap later, but because uh, Renault, and perhaps this is something uh, a team aiming to rebuild a championship contention has to build on, uh, put through a pit stop that was 1.4 seconds slower uh, than Red Bull Racing. In fact, Christian Horner seemed quite upset after the race that his team did such a good job and still lost the position. But it shows that when you're operating amongst the pointy end even of the midfield, field, that everything really has to be perfect to try and get a result. Absolutely. And we've seen this with Red Bull time and time again. Their pit stops are incredibly good. And, uh, you know, it has been, it's been a, uh, a trend of theirs that's elevated them to podiums. Perhaps they shouldn't have got in previous seasons when they were down on engine power. So certainly the in the pits and strategically, they did their job. But uh, I think Daniel Ricciardo knew that he had the one chance to ambush Gasly uh, when, the, uh, when the undercut didn't work. But uh, yeah, look, I think Red Bull's doing their job in the pits. Renault's still trying to iron out some of the the bugs that come with transitioning from a, a bona fide midfield team into a team that can uh, fight further up the field. So look, Red Bull in the pits did their job, but uh, the driver not so much. Yeah, and so much so. And to, to cap off the, the talk about Pierre Gasly, I suppose, I'm sure there'll be plenty over the coming weeks, possibly even the whole season, is that from that point on, on the hard tyre, didn't really have the pace that Daniel did and, and dropped off so much so that Raikkonen and Hulkenberg, as we talked about earlier, with the advantage of those medium tyres at the end and having run pretty competitive stints on the hard tyre were able to slot into the gap between Daniel and Pierre uh, and finished between them with Lando Norris in the mix as well having suffered that hydraulic problem so everything really compounded for Pierre in this race Uh, the the key seemed to be at least if you want to dissect this race in particular a lack of pace on that hard tyre because the soft tyre management was not so bad at the start of the race but plenty for him to work on I suppose and plenty for Red Bull Racing to address in the space of only a week before their home Grand Prix Yeah absolutely and I think you could go back a a phase further than that and the decision to run him on soft tyres in Q2 on Mm -hmm. Saturday condemned him to being a bit of a sitting duck I mean there were some indications that they thought the soft tyre runners would be in as early as laps six Mm -hmm. and uh, it wasn't quite as early as that but uh, it was pretty clear that uh, well the fact that nobody outside the top 10 even bothered with the soft uh, and you know Giovinazzi and and Gasly were really on their back foot from before the race started the uh, the only good news I guess for Pierre Gasly was was even worse for Antonio Giovinazzi (laughs) because he ended up finishing in 16th place yeah exactly right Giovinazzi suffered as well quite badly uh, from I guess partly because of that early stop I mean lap seven was when uh, Alfa Romeo decided to bring him in. He got caught at the back. Uh, an interesting characteristic of the Alfa Romeo car seems to be that it can hold position because it has this great um, power towards the end of the straight. 
But when it comes to overtaking, perhaps not quite so easy. So Raikkonen had a really good job of defending against Nico Hulkenberg. But then you could argue, perhaps had he started behind Hulkenberg, wouldn't have been able to make the, fast in the, make the pass in the first place. Which is, considering the midfield is so close this season, these tiny, unusual characteristics are really having a massive impact. Absolutely. I think Raikkonen's result was... Uh... One made by few mistakes and by stealth more than anything else, <laughs> more than outside speed. It's, it's not a car, as you said, that's going to be able to uh, pull a lot of on-track passes. It's a good it's a good cork in the bottle, that car, <laughs> you might say, but uh, it's certainly not one that's going to be overtaking too many of its rivals. The tyres, as we've talked about pretty much over the course of the whole podcast, did play a, a fairly substantial role in this Grand Prix, combined with other characteristics, the circuit and the weather, of course. Uh, but this was an interesting Grand Prix. We touched on it a little bit in the last uh, podcast reviewing the Canadian Grand Prix, but it's a story that really isn't going away, if anyone was inclined to dismiss it in the last couple of weeks, that teams are, are lobbying for tyre constructions to be changed, certain teams, I should say, uh, back to 2018. And this was an interesting test case because... If we want to say that this race was affected by tyre conservation and tyre management, this was precisely the thing that these changes uh, for this year's constructions were brought in to ameliorate. It would be very easy to argue that last year's tyres would make it even worse, and yet there's still this momentum for tyre change. I guess this is purely self-interest to try and rein in Mercedes, isn't it? Is there anything other than self-interest in Formula 1, Michael? <laughs> but, I mean, last, last time I looked, I think Mercedes did pretty well in 2018 and mm. 17 and 16 and go back as far as we can go. But uh, look, so if you've got a situation where you've got a team that seems to be more dominant than the past, then if you're not that team, of course, you're going to be lobbying for change. You're going to do anything you can to try and upset the momentum of the team that uh, has now won the first eight Grand Prix of the season. So... Um, look, not surprised that the talk is happening. Uh, do I expect anything to become of those talks? I wouldn't have thought so. It's, uh, it seems like one of those things where the other teams are making a lot of noise because if they didn't make the noise, it would probably be more noticed and more reported <laughs> upon. But uh, in terms of actually changing something midstream or you know, now we're more than a third of the way through the season, you can't see it happening. But uh, it's certainly not going to stop the uh, the cage rattling, shall we say. Yeah, it'd be particularly interesting. I mean, a mid-season change for a control part would be, I mean, not unprecedented. In fact, Pirelli's constructions have changed before. I think it was 2013, wasn't it, after the British Grand Prix when we had the exploding tyre situation? 2013 off the top of my head anyway. Uh, and yes, to consider that, the, that anyone could propose that it would be changed in the mid-season. Also, I mean, I know Formula One, I mean, it's meant to be a sport. Some people consider it more politics than sport, but... <laughs> Yeah, considering it's really just a, a matter of whether or not you've done a good job with the tyres they had noticed they were going to be using or not. Well, I think you've just I think you've just mentioned there the fact that that 2013 British Grand Prix that was a safety concern, mm. and you know something had to be done from a, a safety point of view. I've, I've not heard any discussion of it being a safety issue. It's a performance issue, and uh, Mercedes have uh, have made the best of the situation. Everyone else had the same opportunity to make the best of these new new tires. It's just that the team that's been dominating for the past five years has done the best job of that and increased their margin. I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, this is uh, one of those moments. Much as we should admire Lewis Hamilton's performances at this point uh, of the season, likewise Mercedes, which is continuing to raise the bar. You think it couldn't get any better for them uh it continues to there was perhaps only one fly in the ointment for lewis hamilton uh he tried to score the fastest lap towards the end of the race that one i guess extra bit of intrigue that's been added to races this season uh he almost got it as well i think he had it on the penultimate lap uh were it not for sebastian vettel switching to those unloved soft tires and and just scoring it actually only by less than a tenth of a second which is 
incredible considering the tire he was using relative to Hamilton. But I mean, that's pretty much the the most imperfect this race got for them. Well, I looked at it from this point of view. This is probably showing you the pace that Mercedes has in reserve. If Hamilton can set a time on a set of tires, a set of hard tires that had done twenty nine laps, that was two hundredths mm-hmm. slower than Sebastian Vettel doing the lap time on the final lap of the race on a one lap old set of softs. If that doesn't show you the relative performance advantage, okay, yes, there's a you know fuel to be taken into account, and Hamilton's tyres probably weren't perfect at that point either, mm-hmm. quite frankly. If he's done 29 laps on a set of hards, but uh, that's reasonably terrifying for the rest of the field <laughs> to think, well, just how much could he have actually won by if he really needed to push? He was under no pressure from his own teammate from behind, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of management going on. But to set a lap that was 200 slower than the fastest lap of the race on a set of hard tyres that had done 29 laps, that uh, that needs to be accompanied with the Jaws music, I think, if you're the rest of the field. <laughs> It's, uh, it's mildly terrifying for everybody else. This, I suppose, in some respects, not that this in any way saved the spectacle of this Grand Prix, but I suppose it was for races like this that the the the, the fastest lap point rule was brought in this season because it did give us this very minor point of intrigue uh, towards the end of the race with Lewis Hamilton trying to set the fastest lap, Sebastian Vettel only just getting it off them. But as we've talked about in episodes past. It inevitably seems to fall to the least impressive front runner. Although in this case it wasn't Pierre Gasly, uh, it's got to be admitted. But the least impressive of the front runners in position, who ends up scoring them. We had this unusual situation where Ferrari identified that with a not so coded message. Yeah. I mean, it does kind of devalue the the situation a little bit, doesn't it? It does. I've uh, unofficially started referring to this as the golden Gasly point because uh, <laughs> it's pretty much what it comes down to. One point for doing the worst job with the best machinery. <laughs> and it's pretty much what this comes down to. It's a, it's. I'm not, I'm not. I've not been a fan of it from the start because I, I sense that it was going to reward relative mediocrity, mm-hmm. and I think that's what it's come down to this year. So often it's come down to. Which driver out of the top three teams is in the worst position with 10 laps to go? And uh, I did have to laugh last night when uh, the uh, the team radio came across to Sebastian Vettel, we're going to plan F, <laughs> which uh, was not exactly coded. It was more, uh, you know, well, we're, uh, we're effing going nowhere in fifth place here, so we might as well stick some soft tyres on and try and get a fastest lap point. But uh, even you look at the fact that Sebastian Vettel scored 11 points in this race for finishing fifth, which was one point fewer than Max Verstappen mm-hmm. scored for finishing fourth the relative gap between those two drivers and the job each of them did and their teams did over the course of the weekend seems to be, should be rewarded by more than one extra Mm. point, I would have thought. But uh, that's where the system is flawed. And I don't know if it's going to be a factor in the championship this year, but to think that a position in the championship could Mm -hmm. be dictated by who did the worst job out of the best teams and was able to get a free point at the end of a race. I'm not sure it uh, has had quite the outcome that the uh, the, the intention uh, the intention came up with. So it's a source of frustration, but uh, yes, Plan F uh, did amuse me. It, uh, and uh, sure enough, Plan F delivered when it needed to. And it is worth pointing out that comparison between Vettel and Verstappen in the final part of this race when the Plan F trigger was pulled. <laughs> Vettel was closing on Verstappen. Red Bull Racing thought it would be more or less as fast as Ferrari. And I suppose you could say they were. Verstappen sandwiched Leclerc and Vettel. But realistically, the Ferrari was 
if only a small step, but a small step ahead of the Red Bull racing car. And that gap from Vettel to Verstappen for fourth place was closing towards the end of the race. I think it was down to only about four seconds when uh, Plan F was triggered. Mm. In some respects, that does mean, and we don't know how much of a battle we would have gotten out of this, if at all, but potentially the sport lost a battle here because Ferrari decided, well, it was worth banking on the one point when it could have been a two-point difference, but, you know, what are the odds of passing here? We'll just go for the safe option. Yeah, completely right. You look at it and say, well, we could draw right up on the back of Verstappen here in an attempt to get you know, an extra two points. Mm. That might be, a, a what, a 20% chance of getting the extra point, whatever it might be. Or we can just pit and put the soft tyre on and guarantee ourselves a point. And you're going to get basically half the return for uh, very little work by comparison. So that uh, it could be... Uh, could be track specific. It could also be car specific. But the, the fact they made that choice, where it did look very much like uh, towards the back end of the race, that Vettel was going to be able to mount a challenge on one of those last couple of laps. Given the nature of the circuit, the only real passing spot was into the chicane at the end of the back straight. You might have had one or two chances at best to steal two extra points against a driver who is very, very good at defending and has a very wide car in these situations. Or we can just, we're under no threat from behind, let's put the softs on and bank a point and go home. So, uh, yeah, I do think uh, that would have played a factor late in the race. And it's a shame that the the fight that looked like it was going to materialise didn't because there was a reward for doing something else. And finally, I mean, we've talked, uh, of course, a lot about tyres. Haas talks a lot about tyres. Uh, this weekend, though, uh, home favourite? Maybe we shouldn't say favourite. There are a lot of French drivers. Home driver, Romain Grosjean. Although he's technically Swiss, actually, so maybe he's none of those things. Did say, I think quite honestly, despite not finishing the race, that it's probably about time Haas stopped talking about tyres and started talking about its car. And I think this was a particularly interesting race in that regard because for so much of this season, we've seen Haas qualify fairly well and then say they're struggling to heat up the tyres, to put energy through the tyres and sink like stones through the course of the Grand Prix. Uh, In this race, they were nowhere in qualifying and nowhere in the Grand Prix, despite, as Grosjean said, this being a fairly high energy circuit. And as we've said, the weather was pretty warm. No one else really struggled to uh, underheat the tyres. If anything, it was all about overheating. Hmm. This has been a really interesting turnaround for the worst for Haas since the start of the season, since doing quite well in Australia. And it really does seem like they're completely lost on the back of a confounding French Grand Prix performance. No, I agree. I mean, it's one thing to be slow, to not really know why. Hmm. There's just a lot of head scratching and uh, shoulder shrugging and palms up raised at the moment at that team. You can tell things aren't going very well when Gunther Steiner doesn't have much to say, (laughs) um, even once you take the expletives out. But... uh, it's just a completely nondescript race for them. And you said, look, Australia looked really promising for them. I mean, they obviously had a very strong season last year, challenged for fourth in the Constructors' Championship the whole way through. At the moment, they are nowhere, and they don't seem to know why. There's clearly a few teams that have gone by them. And, uh, yeah, this uh, this mystified look that they have at the end of every weekend, not knowing why they are where they are, and didn't even have the promise of, well, we're okay in qualifying, it just didn't work out in the race for us. They were absolutely nowhere. And as you said, you can't really be complaining about tyre warm-up on a surface that's 55 <laughs> degrees Celsius. So, uh, yeah, some uh, some pretty long nights ahead for them. And obviously, with the calendar being pretty compressed in the next part of the season, not a lot of time to really get on top of things as we head into this European swing. Yes, the hashtag better than Red Bull has never seemed so out of place <laughs> for the Haas F1 team. But, you know, good on them for having a go, I suppose, in what was otherwise... 
Well, I, I have enjoyed the use of the word soporific so far this weekend. So let's go with that. Soporific French Grand Prix. Uh, Matt, I'm so sorry that we chose this race to have you on, but I think we did a fair enough job of analysing it. We tried our best. And, uh, well, given the way the French Grand Prix seems to be going when I appear on your uh, program, they may just cancel it altogether <laughs> next year. Who knows? But, uh, Michael, terrific to talk to you as always. And, uh, yeah, let's hope we uh, get a good race in Austria in a week's time. That was motorsport journalist Matt Clayton. The Strategy Report is powered by Apex Race Manager, the mobile race management simulator. Play it for free on iOS and Android devices. If you want more Strategy Report, you can get every episode by subscribing on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on your favourite podcasting app, plus all of your socials. And if you like what you've heard, we'd love it if you could give us a rating and a review to help other F1 fans find the show. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast, and if you're looking for a less serious look at the French Grand Prix, have a search for Box of Neutrals in your podcast app of choice to hear Rob James and I talk about, well, anything else that happened on the weekend that wasn't the French Grand Prix. I've been Michael Laminato. Look me up at Michael Laminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in just a week's time for an analysis of the Austrian Grand Prix.